Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Man of Sorrows. All right, so on the Sunday before his crucifixion, you guys know the story. The Lord Jesus Christ rode down the western slope of the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley on the back of a donkey. And so that act, which conservative scholars believe took place either in AD 32 or AD 33, fulfilled an ancient messianic prophecy that was given to us by Zechariah 500 years before it happened. Okay, and so look at what Zechariah the prophet wrote in anticipation of the coming Messiah. He said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your, what's the word? King. king. Your king, Israel, is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a, a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so in fulfillment of that ancient messianic prophecy, Jesus came down the mount on the back of a donkey. And as he did, his disciples, in order to honor and worship and respect him, laid down their cloaks on the ground as Jesus went down the western slope of the Mount of Olives and into the Kidron Valley. And they went out, John tells us, and cut down palm tree branches and laid the palm branches on the ground before Jesus uh, rode over them on his donkey, hence the term palm Sunday, and I'm sure there was lots of people who were waving those palm branches at him as well. And so as all this is happening, people began to shout. They began to shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What they were doing is they were shouting and quoting Psalm 118. And so as far as the Lord's disciples were concerned, this first Palm Sunday, it was very, very celebratory. They, they were rejoicing. They were having a party, right? Until something very awkward happened. You see, in the midst of all the celebration, they looked over at Jesus, and Jesus wasn't celebrating. They looked over at Jesus, and Jesus was weeping. You see, as he came down the donkey, from the Mount of Olives, he turned the corner, and as soon as the city of Jerusalem was in full view, as he looked across the Kidron Valley to the west, as soon as the city of Jerusalem came into full view, Jesus began to cry. And through his tears, he said this over the city. He said, would that you, even you, had known this day, the day of the triumphal entry of the king. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, you may be here today and God's got a plan. God's got an awesome plan for your life. Just know you can miss that plan. Whether or not God is, is sovereign, God is sovereign, but if you, like Israel, like Jerusalem, decide that you're gonna harden your heart, you can miss God's plan for your life, and you can end up going down a path that will lead you to destruction. And so, would that you, 
Even you had known this day, the day of the triumphal entry, the things that make for your peace. You see, even though the disciples were rejoicing and waving palm branches and laying down their cloaks on the ground before their king, you need to know that most of the Jews and the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, rejected the Lord as the Messiah. And because of their rejection, they missed what should have been their special day. Jerusalem could have experienced so much peace 2,000 years ago, but now because of their rejection, all that was left for the city was destruction. And you need to know that in Luke 19, the next verse, verse 43, and the verse after that, verse 44, as Jesus is sitting on the donkey, as he's sobbing and weeping, that he prophesied the fall, the destruction of Jerusalem and their temple. And so Jesus could see it. He could see the Romans coming in in AD 70. And so he says this, AD 32, 33, on the back of the donkey, he prophesies the fall of Jerusalem. Less than 40 years later, AD 70, the Jews had rebelled. And so here comes General Titus, here comes the Roman army, and they attack, they kill thousands of Jews with the edge of the sword, and they burn down the temple. Jesus saw it all, and he wept. He didn't just wipe away a few tears. No, 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 the word wept in the original language, kalio, means to mourn, means to lament, it means to bewail. He was sobbing. Because how many of you guys understand that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, but they harden their hearts. And this is one of the reasons why another prophet, Isaiah, called him the man of sorrows. Now, I'm not gonna teach on all this, but you need to know that Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ, Isaiah is called today the evangelical prophet. The reason he's called the evangelical prophet is because Isaiah, more than any other Old Testament writer, spoke about Christ. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just something to whet your ap appetite. And so Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came, prophesied the coming Messiah's virgin birth in chapter seven, verse 14. He prophesied his ministry in Galilee. Where did Jesus do most of his ministry? around the Sea of Galilee. That was prophesied 700 years before it happened in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Of course, every Christmas, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, listen to this, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, um, it talks about him sitting on the throne of David. That's Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And then you turn over to Isaiah 11, and now we're talking about the branch of Jesse. You guys know who Jesse is, right? Please, please, please read the Old Testament. <laughs> the New Testament will come alive if you know the Old Testament. Jesse's the father of David. And David, God made a covenant with David that through his line, the Messiah would come. And so the branch of Jesse, and then... Here we are today in Isaiah 53, and you need to know that this passage that we're gonna study this morning is the number one greatest messianic prophecy in all the Bible. 
We are on hallowed ground on this Palm Sunday as we talk about the prophecy of the suffering servant, also known as the prophecy of the man of sorrows. And so for the rest of our time together, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at this prophecy of Christ in Isaiah called the man of sorrows in chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53. And what I'm excited about is as we go through this verse by verse, this is gonna prepare our hearts for communion. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end of the service, when you come up here and you grab the cup and you grab the bread, this is not some empty ritual. These elements are packed with meaning because the cup represents the blood that Almighty God shed so that you could live forever. And the bread represents his body, which Almighty God allowed his body to be broken so you and I could live forever. Isaiah 53 is gonna prepare our hearts for communion. And so, by the way, this whole message that the Messiah endured the wrath of God against sin so you and I don't have to experience the wrath of God, that is not just the message of the New Testament. That is the message of Isaiah in the Old Testament. We're on hallowed ground this morning, and before we get into chapter 52, verse 13, I need to tell you that when I was 17 years old, I met Jesus, and it wasn't a religion. It became a relationship. I grew up in the church, and every single Sunday I saw him hanging on the cross. But it didn't click with me. It didn't, I didn't understand it. Yet I was drawn to Jesus, and I was drawn to the cross. In those days, I had been an altar boy, and I always loved the um, way of the cross and the stations of the cross on Good Friday, because as an altar boy, I would be drawn to the cross, and yet I didn't get it. The reason I didn't get it is because if you would have asked me in those days, Mike, why are you going to heaven? I would have said, I'm a good guy. God's gonna take me in. And so I didn't understand. Many of you know my testimony. I'm not gonna retell my testimony, but on the day that I understood by God's mercy and grace that salvation, if you're, if you're listening right now, say amen. amen. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When I accepted Christ and his payment for me, apart from any meritorious works, the Holy Spirit of God came, on, came inside of my body and changed my life. And I knew as a 17 year old, I need a Bible because I began to hunger for God's word. So you know what I did? Now this is back in the days before, of, before the internet or the World Wide Web. And so for all those of you who are out there who are millennials, we had these things called phone books back then. They were about this big and this thick, and I lived in South Tampa, and I knew that I needed a Bible, and so I looked, and I found a Catholic bookstore, it's all I knew, a Catholic gift shop, I jumped in my car, I drove to North Tampa. This is back when you had to call people and say, where are you located, and you had to write down the directions. Siri wasn't around back then. And so I went to this Catholic bookstore, I bought this Bible, my first Bible. And it's interesting because in this Bible, my first Bible, I have some notes. 
And these notes are dated May 27th, 1984. 35 year old, this is 35 years old. This is when I came to know Jesus in a relationship. And I began to study his word. And I began to write all the verses that the Lord at that time began to put on my heart. And I think it's so interesting as I was reminiscing about this this week that I grabbed my, my first Bible, which by the way has the Apocrypha in it, but that's another story for another time. But I grabbed my Bible and I looked and sure enough, even back in those days, Isaiah 53, it's all marked up. Why? Because God used this passage in a 17-year-old's life to prove to me that if Isaiah can make detailed prophecies about Jesus 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, then Jesus must be the Messiah and this book must be God's word. And God changed my life because of that. And so ladies and gentlemen, listen, we are on hallowed ground. And let me say this as well. What I love about Calvary Chapel, what I love about our heritage and the mentors who taught me they taught me every single Sunday, Pastor Mike, you need to study the word with your people. I do not give motivational speeches that will make you feel good about yourself. That is not this church. What I do is I teach the Bible and point you to Christ so you can be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ because that is where it's at. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. If I'm gonna give you a motivational speech to make you feel good about yourself and pump you up every week, guess what? That'll last for 24, maybe 48 hours, and you're gonna go right back down the drain where you, where you were on Saturday. And then it's my job, as you drag yourself in here seven days later to pump you back up and give you another motivational speech to make you feel good about yourself, that is not my job as a pastor. My job is to feed the flock of God the Word of God, and then let the Word of God inside of you change you from the inside out to die to yourself and to follow Jesus Christ. That is what this church is all about. And so I hope right now, you're not hoping for a motivational speech, I hope right now you have the word of God open and you're ready to follow along verse by verse because what I say will not change you and have any effect on your life, but God's word will absolutely change you forever. Please. Open your Bibles. It's God's word. We need to study it. And the, the passage of the suffering servant does not begin in Isaiah 53, 1. No, it actually starts in 52, verse 13. And so before there were chapter divisions and verse divisions, this amazing prophecy begins in 52.13. So if you're looking at that right now, just say amen. amen. All right, so here we go. Verse by verse. Behold, what's the next two words? My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And so the first thing we have to do is define who is my servant. And the answer is, Isaiah was writing about the coming Messiah. You say, well, how do you know that? I know that because of Isaiah 42, one through nine, which we're not gonna take time to turn there now, but if you look later at Isaiah 42, one through nine, you see the same phrase, my servant, and he says, I'll put my spirit upon him, 
He will bring forth justice to the nations. It says that he will give my servant, this man, my servant, as a covenant for the people, listen to this, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Ladies and gentlemen, who alone in history caused the blind to see? Shout out his name. Jesus, this passage, my servant is Jesus. And so before God showed Isaiah the Messiah's future suffering, he showed him his future glory. He said in verse 13, behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up. And so the question is, after his death and resurrection, was Jesus high and lifted up? Well, I'll let Paul answer that question in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. He, the father, raised him, the son, from the dead. Looking forward to next week. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far, what's the next word? Above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Listen, you cannot get any higher or any more lifted up than that. And so what was prophesied in the Old Testament, Isaiah 52, 13, is fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. But then suddenly the scene changes. It goes from exaltation to humiliation. So put your seatbelts on, look at verse 14. As many were as, as astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, the word is disfigured, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. And so Isaiah in verse 14 said that his appearance would be so marred, so disfigured, that people would not be able to recognize him. And ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what happened to our Lord Jesus. From the time that he stood before Annas and Caiaphas to the time that some brute Roman soldier pounded spikes into his hands and feet, during that time, our Lord was beaten so badly you could not recognize him. After Caiaphas said, I adjure you, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, I am. After Jesus said, I am the son of God, this is what Mark said happened to him, that some began to spit on him. Imagine spitting in the face of your creator. That's what humanity says to God. They spit on him and they covered his face. That means they blindfolded him and they struck him saying, prophesy. The idea is he's got a blindfold on and they walk up to him and boom. Hey, who hit you, Jesus? If you're the Messiah, you know who just boom again, boom again. And the guards received him not with a blow, but with blows. I've told you before, if you ever, God forbid, get into a fight and you see the punch coming, you can dodge, you can step back, you can put your hands up, you can weave. Jesus was blindfolded and multitude 
of people were punching him over and over. He didn't see any of it coming. What was the result? The result was a fulfillment of a prophecy that he was so marred, you couldn't even recognize his face. What the Jews did that day to Christ was brutal, but it wasn't as bad as what the Romans did to him. You see, as after the Sanhedrin turned Jesus over to Pilate, Pilate had Jesus scourged, right? You remember cat of nine tails? Whipped over and over and over again, and crucified. Now I've taught many times in detail on the scourging and crucifixion of Christ, and so I'm not gonna reteach all of that for time's sake, but if you wanna see it, I encourage you this week to rent the Passion of the Christ. Because I believe that the people who made this movie back in 2004 did a pretty good job at explaining what really happened to our Lord. There's some things in the movie I don't agree with, but by and large, ladies and gentlemen, that will, will remind you of what he went through because he loves you. This is not for little kids. Let them learn about Jesus on their level. But this week, maybe this Friday, maybe this Friday at three o'clock, put on the Passion of the Christ and let the Lord remind you again that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. I remember seeing this for the first time in the theater when it came out in 2004, and when the picture was over, everybody in the theater was stunned. You could have heard a pin drop, and no one got out of their seats. They just, like, could not believe it. So I encourage you to take courage and allow yourself to be reminded once again of the suffering of the Messiah. Now, the idea of a suffering Messiah has been rejected by many people for the last 2,000 years, and that leads us to our next verse. Look at verse 53, verse one. Chapter 53, verse one. It says, who, who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, can you believe this? Well, not many people do. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so even though it's as plain as the nose on their face, you need to know that many people absolutely deny that Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 has anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Even though it is as plain as the nose on their face, they cannot accept that a gift of prophecy is actually real or the prophet the office of prophet actually existed, or a man named Isaiah could predict details about a man who would live 700 years later. They cannot, in their unbelieving minds, their hard hearts, accept that, so they come up with all these alternatives. And they say, well, Isaiah was writing about himself, that Isaiah is actually the man of sorrows. But there's a problem with that interpretation. Number one, it's wrong. Number two, the reason that it's wrong is because never in the Bible, never in the Old Testament, do you ever see any prophet ever suffering and dying for Israel's sins. It doesn't fit. And so others will say, well, you're right. It's not Isaiah talking about Isaiah. He's talking about Israel. And they'll take you back to chapter 44 where it says, Israel, my servant. You see, Israel is what 
Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 53. But that's a wrong interpretation as well because ladies and gentlemen, as you read these verses, it's very clear that Isaiah was writing about a person, not a nation, and that person who suffers in these verses, listen to this, was innocent. Look at verse 9b, the second half of verse 9. Isaiah 53, second half of verse nine, it says, although he had done, what's the next two words? No violence, and there was, what's the next two words? No deceit in his mouth, all right? Some people say, well, Isaiah was talking about himself. Isaiah is the suffering servant, the man of sorrow. All right, here's the question. Was Isaiah innocent? Did Isaiah really have no deceit in his mouth? Well, does anybody remember Isaiah chapter six when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple? Isaiah has a vision of God Almighty and what's his response? He says, woe is me, I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah was far from innocent Therefore, Isaiah 53 is not about Isaiah. Well, what about Israel? Israel is what he was talking about. Are you trying to tell me that, in, that Israel was never deceitful and never violent? Listen, you look at the biblical history of Israel and apostate Israel was very deceitful and very violent. This is not talking about Israel. This is talking about the coming Messiah and we know his name, his name is Jesus. But who's gonna believe our report? Look at verse one again. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so you come to the New Testament and you got the apostle John. And look at what John says. That though he, Jesus, had done so many signs, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by who? Prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He quotes Isaiah 53.1. You see, John knew, Paul knew, Peter knew, all the apostles knew that this passage that we're studying this morning is all about Jesus Christ. Look at verse two. It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now this is, this is fascinating to me. It says that he grew up like a root out of dry ground, all right? So right now, picture a root down there in dry ground. Here's the question. Does the root receive anything from the dry soil around it? The answer is no. And just like a root doesn't receive anything from the barren soil all around it, so Jesus did not receive anything from the dry, barren religious environment that he grew up in. Ladies and gentlemen, Israel in the first century AD was parched 
spiritually. God had not spoken to his people for 400 years since the last book of your, of your Old Testament, since the prophet Malachi. God said, zip it, I'm not talking to them. Not only that, Judaism had deteriorated into a dry religion of man-made rules and man-made regulations. Jesus was a root that grew up out of dry ground. He didn't receive anything from the legalistic religiosity that he grew up in. And yet, he grew up to be the strongest tree that's ever existed. And even though he didn't receive anything from his environment, he gave everything to the world. He's a root out of dry ground. And did you notice that he was just an ordinary looking guy? Did you see that at the second half of verse two? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And so people were not attracted to Jesus because, you know, he's so handsome. Look at him. No, not at all. They were not attracted to any outward beauty. They were attracted by his inward beauty, his great love, his wisdom, his kindness, which ladies and gentlemen, that's the best beauty of all, inward beauty. And yet, what does our culture tell us? What does almost every commercial tell us? It's all about the outside. And so you gotta make sure that you're in the gym 80 hours a week. You gotta make sure you're eating all the right kind of food. And you gotta make sure you go and get just the right haircut. And you gotta make sure that you look just so perfect on the outside. Have you guys never written that God doesn't look at the outward appearance? God looks at the heart. And true beauty is inward beauty, not outward beauty. And so, reject our culture. You're a follower of Christ. Don't listen to that junk. Develop your inner man and your inner woman. And so even though some accepted him, most rejected him. Look at verse three. It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And so Jesus was despised and rejected by men. I mean, you, you've read the gospels, right? The religious leaders called him a drunk. They called him a glutton. They called him a Samaritan. They said, you're possessed by Beelzebub. In other words, you got a demon inside of you. And the worst of all, the lowest blow of all, is when the religious leaders looked at Jesus and said, you were born of sexual immorality. You know what they're saying? What they're saying is they're talking about Jesus' mama. Not about you, but when I grew up, you don't talk about someone's mama. And they talked about his mama. And you know what they're saying in essence? Jesus, your mama, she lied about the virgin birth. She got pregnant with you because she was fooling around on Joseph before she got married to Joseph. They hated him. He was despised and rejected by men. And why did they hate him so much? Because they were jealous of him. Because the crowds were following Jesus and they stopped going to hear them teach. And John predicted all of it in the New Testament. 
John said he came to his own, he came to Israel, and his own people did not receive him. Now, many of you who know the Bible, you know there's another verse after this in John 1, 12. And it goes on to say, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, if you'll turn from your sins and turn to Jesus as your Messiah and your Lord, then he will make you a son or a daughter of God. Why? Because he loves you so much. In spite of our sin, he absolutely loves us. Look at verse four. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Some of you have the, the translation um, uh, wounded. But if you look up the word, the, the original word, it could be translated either way, but part of the translation means literally to bore through. And so he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. Do you see this? He was punished in your place. And with his wounds, his stripes, we are healed. It says in verse five that he was pierced. Of course, that was fulfilled when the Roman soldiers pounded in the spikes into his hands and his feet and later on stuck a spear inside of his, inside of his side. He was pierced, but look at verse five again. He was pierced for his transgressions. No, no, he was pierced for our transgressions. Well, how does that fulfill? I mean, how is that fulfilled in the New Testament? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for his sins? No, no, died for our sins. He never sinned ever in his life. He was a lamb without blemish and without spot. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the what? The scriptures. And you need to know that the Apostle Paul did not have a New Testament like we have today that was not put together yet. Much of it was not even written yet. And so, what was Paul referring to when he said the scriptures? The passage we're studying right now, ladies and gentlemen. Christ died for our sins in accordance with what the prophet Isaiah said 700 years before it happened. Look at verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How did Jesus fulfill that prophecy? Well, Peter in the New Testament says that he, Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so what happened is the Lord, the Father, laid on him the iniquity, that means sin, of us all. And so imagine Jesus, he's on the cross and what is he doing? He's receiving all the sin that's ever been committed into his body on the tree, your sin, my sin, heaped upon Christ. And it says that he did that so that we might die to sin, not so we can continue in sin. What is up with this apathetic, 
attitude in the church today. That because Christ died and paid for my sins, then party. I can get drunk every weekend. I can look at pornography. I can cheat on my spouse. I can cuss people out on Facebook. I can do whatever I wanna do and all my sins are forgiven. No, you've missed the whole boat. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we should die to sin. Sin, you're dead to me. You no longer exist. And I'm gonna live for Christ and I'm gonna live a righteous life. And I'm not talking about pulling up yourself by your bootstraps and trying to be a good person in your own strength. I'm talking about when you turn to Christ alone, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead comes inside of your body and he gives you a supernatural power to die to sin and to live for righteousness. That's how we glorify the Lord in our lives. Do not allow yourself to thumb your nose at the greatest sacrifice that was ever paid by continuing in unrepentant sin. Don't do it. Let today be the day where you turn finally away from that besetting sin that's inside of your life and you beg God to give you victory over it. It says in verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. How did Jesus fulfill this prophecy? Well, when he stood before the high priest at his trial and they're questioning him, it says in Matthew 26, 63, that Jesus remained what? And then when the chief priest accused him before Pilate and Pilate tried to get him to talk, it says in Matthew 27, 14, he gave him no answer. And so Pilate sends Jesus to Herod Antipas and it says that Herod questioned him at some length, but he made what? See, the Bible, Bible prophecy, ladies and gentlemen, is detailed. We're not talking about Nostradamus saying general things that you can interpret any way that you want to. We're talking about detailed prophecies fulfilled 700 years later in one person, Jesus Christ. And so it says in verse eight, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, and I wanna pause right here because I'm getting ready to read a sentence that is absolutely a gold mine. Okay, are you ready? Who considered that he was cut off? Everybody, please say cut off cut off out of the land of the living. What does that mean? That means that a man named Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah would die. You cannot explain this. Are you guys getting what I'm saying this morning? This stuff proves that this is God's word. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my People. Now, what do you do with a dead guy's body? What do you do when someone dies? What's the next thing you do? You bury him. Look at verse nine. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence 
and there was no deceit in his mouth. It says in verse nine, they made his grave with the wicked. How did Jesus fulfill that prophecy? Here's how. When the Roman soldiers were waiting for Jesus and two thieves, wicked guys, to expire, they were just gonna grab all three of their bodies and throw them in a common grave. Throw them in the valley of Hinnom, right? But the prophecy in detail goes on to say in verse nine that not only did they make his grave with the wicked, but then it says, and with a rich man in his death. And so what happened was despite the soldier's intention to bury Jesus with the wicked, a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea went to Pontius Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. And Pilate agreed, and then this happens. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in whose tomb? A rich man's tomb, which he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and then he went away. Just like Isaiah said, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Look at verse 10 now. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. It's talking about his spiritual offspring. And so if you're here today and you've given your life to Christ, there you are in the Bible right there. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now wait. I'm telling you, every single sentence is packed. But he will prolong his days. The Messiah died in verse 8. He was buried in verse 9, and now in verse 10, it says that he shall prolong his days. How do you prolong a dead guy's days? Well, come back next week, and I'll tell you. It's called the resurrection. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So much to talk about, so little time. I'll sum it up with this right here. The coming Messiah. Isaiah said it 700 years before it happened. He would die. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He was buried. They made his grave with a rich man in his death. And he rose from the grave, it says he shall prolong his days. But I wanna focus in as we wind down here at verse 10. So please look at verse 10. Right now, if you're looking at verse 10, say amen. Okay, look at this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so imagine there's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, on his knees, sweating great drops of blood. And he says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Take this cup, the cup of the cross, from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, the church family, did the father take the cup away from the son? Why? Because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
It was the Father's will to crush him when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And so the primary reason Christ went to the cross was to become an offering for our sin and our guilt. John says this in the New Testament, he is the propitiation for his sins, our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation means to appease. It means to satisfy. And so imagine there's Jesus, he's on the cross, and he has the sin of every person who's ever sinned heaped up upon him. Listen, past, present, future, all sin. He bore in his body on the tree. And as his soul becomes an offering for our guilt and our sin, the father looks and sees the anguish of his son's suffering and death. And the father's propitiated. He's appeased. He's satisfied. In other words, I, the father would say, am pouring out my holy wrath on Jesus, as if Jesus had committed all the sins that have ever been committed, I'm pouring out my wrath on him. Why would you do that, God? Because I so love the world that I gave my one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. It's not the gospel of try harder. You don't have to do any meritorious works to earn your way to heaven. As long as you have that in your head, you cannot, you will not be saved. You got to stop trying and you've got to start trusting in Christ who's the propitiation, the satisfaction, the appeasement of the wrath of God in your place. You need to turn to him as you've never turned to him before and say, Jesus, I accept what you did on the cross completely in my place. You're my only hope. Come and be my savior. Come and live in and through me and Jesus will send his spirit who will come inside of you and change your entire life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so when you take the bread and you take the cup in a moment here, you need to thank Jesus Christ, and I'm going to as well. You need to thank Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for allowing your body to be broken. Thank you for enduring the wrath of God so I'll never have to worry about the wrath of God. And instead of judgment, what do I get? I get a daddy who says, come on, son, come on, daughter, come sit on my knee, let me give you a hug. That's our God. What an awesome God he is. We should all lift him up and praise him for his goodness and his grace. He's such an awesome God. Final verse. Verse 12, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. I don't have time, but this spoils, that's our inheritance, ladies and gentlemen, with Christ, co-heirs with Christ in the millennial kingdom. I can't wait to see you there. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, when did Jesus pray for, make intercession for transgressors? On the cross. 
check it out. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Some of you are carrying bitterness and anger and hatred towards someone who's offended you. Listen, don't give in to your flesh. Be spirit-filled. Forgive that person. Whether they knew what they were doing or not, just forgive them. Let it go. And so for those of you who are furiously taking notes, I'll put all the notes on the screen for you. Maybe you want to take your phone and take a snapshot of that while I'm giving instructions for communion. And so as Pastor Aaron comes out and as the elders prepare to, and the deacons prepare to give us communion this afternoon, I, um, I want to give you some instructions and I encourage you to please listen in. The Apostle Paul, when writing about communion, he said in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, let a person examine himself and then let him eat the bread and drink the cup. Let a person examine himself. This is not a religious ritual. (laughs) This is not a check. This is us realizing what these elements represent and the significance and the weight. And it's us obeying the scripture and examining ourselves. And so if you're with me here, say amen. Amen. Communion is for Christians who have examined themselves. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have no interest to be a Christian, you don't believe Jesus died for your sins and rose again, it would be hypocritical for you to walk up here and take a cup and a piece of bread. No, 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 no. Leave that alone and turn to Christ in repentance and faith. If you'll do that, you're welcome to come and receive the elements. But if you say, no, thank you, you respect us, we'll respect you. This is not Pastor Mike talking, this is God's word saying, communion is for Christians who have examined themselves. If you're a Christian today, um, then if there's anything in your life you need to repent of, what a great opportunity as you hold the cup and hold the bread to get right with God. And, and you just, as you're holding the elements, just, just let them know, God, I, I've blown it. I keep blowing it. But I know I've received Jesus as my Savior. I just, I need your help. Will you forgive me? And just get, get your heart right with God. Now listen, any father who loves his kids, you're forgiven. He says, come on back up on my lap. Let's spend some time together. That's our God. And then um, as you come and get the the gifts, the uh, elements, please take them back to your seats. We're gonna receive them together as a church family. And so Father, we thank you for this hallowed time, this time to do this in remembrance of your son. Bless now our reception of communion, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.